Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show, only on the FYIZ podcast feed. I'm your host, John Walker, and my guest in this podcast is Gemma Files, who is a horror author and a film critic and a teacher, and uh, she also makes really cool sketches that you can find on social media. Uh, but for this conversation and this episode, we are mostly talking about her 2015 novel, Experimental Film, which tells the tale of Lois Cairns, a film critic and teacher. Yes, that's a bit autobiographical, but not 100% autobiographical because Lois comes into contact with a rare film that has a supernatural effect on people, and then, well, you know, hijinks ensue as you might expect. We do get into light plot spoilers, but not much, really. Uh, we do talk about character arcs for the book, but I still think this conversation should be equally interesting to someone who has read the book or who hasn't. However, if you're the sort of person who wants to come in cold and not know anything when you read a book, stop this now and go read Experimental Film and come back. We'll be waiting for you. I hope everyone's back. Now here's my conversation with Gemma Files. Part one, I should say. We'll be back soon with part two where we talk about short stories and horror movies and stuff like that. So I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with the inestimable, that's a hard word, inestimable, Gemma Files. One of the most striking elements of uh, experimental film, at least in terms of the, the lead character, Lois, her story, is her relationship with her son. And, and I gleaned in the little bit of research that I did for this conversation that that some of those details of Lois and, and Clark's story was stuff that you drew from from your own life. My son has special needs. He's on the autism spectrum. And um, I went through uh, a big adjustment period at the beginning of our journey together. But at the same time, he's taught me so much about who I am um, because part of that journey was realizing that um, if people had been looking for um, Asperger's A in girls or B at all when I was you know, a kid, maybe somebody would have gone, oh, maybe she isn't just an asshole. You know, maybe she's, <laughs> maybe she actually has this thing. The worst thing that you feel when, you know, your, your child gets a diagnosis is, what did I do? You know, the only thing that's ever made sense to me is, in fact, um, Simon Baron Cohen's theory, which is that as soon as people started marrying for affinity, as opposed to a basis of bringing two streams of money together or, you know, whatever, nerdy people hooked up with nerdy people. And eventually you get a super nerdy person, you know, where all of those um, impulses and all of those uh, uh, and all of those ways of thinking, you know, just express themselves in the most um, overt way. It's been very interesting. My my son is um, hypoverbal and I'm hyperverbal. You know, um, he has a lot of trouble generating speech and I will talk your ear off. And so, again, at the beginning, I, I would often say to myself, wouldn't it be better if we were both on one side of the spectrum? And I actually think it's I actually think it's not. I think it's I think it's better that I am the way he the way I am and the, and that he is the way he is. It's almost like in any relationship if you think I wish this person was more like me. Exactly. If my wife was more like me, then um we would be sitting in an apartment somewhere with you know with no box springs like a mattress on the floor throwing cards into a hat. <laughs> 
You, I mean, I wanted desperately for my son not to be like me in a way, which is weird. It sounds self-negating, and I don't mean it to sound that no. way. Who am I to imprint this mess on somebody? Well, yeah, exactly. But now that I see him growing up, I'm like, I could do more to imprint myself on him. I could help him more than I thought I could. No, exactly. And if nothing else, you know, the biggest thing that I wanted for my son and the biggest thing that I still want for my son is for him to not ever be as unhappy as I was when I was his age yep. to not ever feel that there is something wrong with him. And, and yet he has no idea what it is. The great part is he has a diagnosis. He knows exactly what is quote, quote, wrong with him. And he knows that it's not something that's wrong with him. It's just the way he is. Uh, he has fears. I can tell, you know, he has anxieties and the fact that he can't express them, um, I don't know. It it may be easier for him in some ways, but it I can't think that it's totally easy for him. But thankfully he has he has his interests the way that I have have my interests and he has a vocation, which is music. Uh, he's very, very musically gifted. He taught himself how to how to play the piano. Another autodidact. Yeah, another oh. autodidact. Exactly. No, but he has like perfect pitch and yeah, he's he's amazing. Were you at all cagey about including that kind of stuff in your novel in a fictional way? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I tried to not do it for a very long time, which is why that book took a long time to write. For about three years, I tried to frame it every other way that I possibly could. And I'd keep writing the first chapter and not being and sticking and not being able to go any further because eventually yeah at the end of three years i sort of looked around and went oh fuck it's, i'm gonna have to be the main character <laughs> yeah Shit. and then i went out to a coffee shop and wrote the first chapter and you know i remember i was crying when i wrote it it was um yeah you know just kind of excoriating to go all right i'm gonna write it as though it's me but i never had a secondary career writing fiction uh and so when I lost everything as a teacher and as a film critic, it would be as though, you know, it's like, what the fuck have I done with my life? And then on top of that, to, to bring in, which actually did happen at the same time, to bring in the idea of your son getting diagnosed. And so uh, the version of my son that became Clark Cairns... <laughs> is uh, basically the moment where I, I remember I said to a friend of mine at one point, I really have no idea if he even loves me. And, you know, my friend was like, oh, my God, you know, it's like, don't say that. Yeah. Um, and now I do. I, I absolutely know that he loves me, which is great um, because I love him a lot. Um, but, yeah, it was it was incredibly hard at the at, at the beginning because even when he started to talk, everything was echolalic. There were there seemed to be no way to interpret why he would focus on the things that he focused. Um, it took a very long time to figure out that um, he's that when he spoke, it was for emotional needs. It wasn't it wasn't for anything practical. You know, it's like my uh, I didn't I didn't talk until I was three and a half. And the first thing I said was, um, may I have another bowl of cereal, please? To which my dad said, bowl? It's bowl. <laughs> 
which tells you a lot about that relationship. Anyway, it's great that he jumped right in with <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. I've been waiting three and a half years to get a chance to correct you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, my you know, my mother would say, yeah, yeah, I I could tell that you understood everything that we said to you. You know, I could tell you to do something that was very, very detailed and you would go and do it. But we did. We really didn't know why you didn't talk. But then bang like that. I love that it was something so functional that you wanted, like, oh, can I have some more cereal? You know, like... Super functional, and you know, it's like, but again, that's that's very Aspergian. Yeah, whereas my son, uh, everything was emotional, and um, the first thing that he uh, really fixated on was a commercial for Nicorette's where <laughs> a woman who's a flight attendant has a, a breakdown because she's she's jonesing for, for a cigarette, <laughs> and he was like, I got pretty irritable. I got pretty irritable Nicorettes, Nicorettes. He would like, you know, go to the store and, you know, kind of genuflect in front of the Nicorettes <laughs> display. And we had no idea why. Stop it! Stop it, stop it, stop it! The last time I tried to quit smoking, only two carry on idols! I got pretty irritable. I wasn't really myself. So, like, the worst moments of the worst point in that journey is where I decided to situate this character. And, you know, the character has a lot of qualities that are mine, but it's like, this is me on the worst day. This is me at, you know, three o'clock in the morning on the worst night. This is, this is the moment where I'm just like the most depressed and the most you know, um, I, I remember somebody uh, criticizing the book and going like, I just don't understand how this woman can even function. And I'm like, well, <laughs> <you know? laughs> I, I can tell you that she can. <laughs> yeah, you are going to be in this Well, as a big fan of the band They Might Be Giants, I would be remiss if I didn't comment on another element of of the book and, and of Clark in the book, which is that um, he sings They Might Be Giants songs throughout the novel, and, and you make specific references to specific songs in such a way that I thought, well, Gemma has to be a fan, or this has to be taken from life. I was just wondering how much thought went into including that detail, that very real detail of a very real band that the that the son is into. Well, um, very little thought because my son really does love They Might Be Giants. We started off with their album No, which was given to him by one of my oldest friends, uh, who is the kind of guy who would give an album of They Might Be Giants doing children's songs to somebody else's kid. So we started off with No, and then moved on to things like They Might Be Giants, Here Comes Science, uh, Here Come the One, Two, Threes, Here Come the ABCs. And after that, I put on Flood, and he really took to it. So we'd be walking around the streets of Toronto going, a woman came up to me and said, like, change your mind. Their thoughts are often obsessive and dark. Uh, and the stuff that they're writing about is often complicated and intricate. But the songs themselves um, are often endlessly singable, literally because they are like on an endless loop. They don't really have an ending per se. They just end. Yes. 
certain things about their music influenced me a lot as a kid, as someone who grew into writing songs. Yeah. And one of the things is I realize a lot of my songs have a verse, a chorus, a middle section, a verse, a chorus, and they're done. And like, yeah. I've just accepted that you would listen to that and go, oh, I can, I can play that again if I want more, you know, but, which is what I've always done. Cal never quite took to Cowtown as much as I would have liked him to. <laughs> it's sort of like he got to the end of Fled and said, no, no, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And and the one that he really did not take to was uh, Fingertips, which is too bad because I, I love Fingertips. Um, the idea of taking all the songs you didn't quite write, you know, <laughs> it's like one, you know, it's, it's like one line. Right. That's when all my troubles began, you know. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that one's a great example um, because it's both like a little piece of microfiction boiled down into a song, but it's also one of their many songs that have lyrics that I would imagine as a horror writer, you've picked up on the sort of weird fiction element to a lot of their songs. Um, something grabbed a hold of my hand. I didn't know what had my hand. And that's when all my troubles began. I mean, you could spend a story uh, just fleshing out the details of that bizarre little scenario which actually reminds me i wanted to mention uh the song experimental film i doubt that it has anything to do with why you titled your book experimental film but it is sort of an interesting coincidence that you mentioned they might be giants in the book and I, that song does if you're familiar with it it does kind of play around with lyrics that that again could be part of a weird fiction situation uh there's a whole reference to the color of infinity and how when he gets to the end of his experimental film that's the part that makes your face implode I mean, all of these things feel like something out of, a, out of a horror story that exists in the songwriter's mind, whether the song itself takes that shape or not. And it seems like a long shot, but were you thinking about that at all when you titled your book? Actually, no, not at all. No. Um, I knew I was going to call it uh, experimental film, but I was going to call it experimental film because... It's about an experimental film. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's about an experimental film, but also because experimental film is one of the weirdest weirdest with a big W genres that I can think of. You know, it, it, I believe that thing that I said, that watching an experimental film is about as close as you can come to dreaming somebody else's dream. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> with all that that entails, you know, it's like, and then I was eating, you know, ch cheese over a drain and then hair came out of the drain and, you know, tried to take my cheese. And then my mom walked in and she knocked out all my teeth with a hammer. And I was like, why? Cause, just cause. I already know the ending, it's the part that makes your face implode. I don't know what makes your face implode, but that's the way the movie Both my husband and my dad, for some reason, have uh, a real um, thing where they don't kind of listen to the lyrics. Uh, and so if um, a vocal sounds odd to them somehow, uh, my my dad, for example, hates where your eyes don't go because there's a guy in the background going, yeah. 
reading this weird wandering falsetto and um you know i'm like but no but it's wonderful it's like listen to the lyrics it's it's hilarious the way the counterpoint you know what you're saying versus what you're hearing my husband likes they might be giants better than my dad because i think he gets that uh there's a certain amount of comedy involved really black comedy but comedy nonetheless but um but yeah both of them have that that thing where it's it's like if i if i don't like the tone of the person's voice i don't like the song <laughs> you know it's like i don't know it sounds kind of whiny my husband will yeah. say <laughs> well i mean it, it is it is like an acquired taste or an, a thing that you'll either love or not love and i think a lot of my favorite singers have voices that can be taken that way and even i wouldn't i wouldn't wish for a golden throat to come in and sing a song like this that has all of its sort of humble charm on its sleeve you know i like the i like the personal side of that that it's it's a person who is maybe un, an unlikely uh pop star you know yeah well i i grew up with a lot of um my, my mother is a big linda ronstad fan uh so i i grew up hearing a lot of cover versions of things um by you know that she would do by very different other people um you know covering elvis costello covering warren zevon um and uh, john prime you know people like that The, there, the tension was between the beauty of her voice and the narrative of the song, which often would be a narrative that wasn't even like a narrative that you would expect a woman to be singing. All of that I found really, really interesting growing up. Um, always the tension between, is this a song that somebody just decided to cover or is this a song that somebody actually wrote? Right. Um, and. You know, what's the difference between uh, a Kate and Anna McGarrigal song that they're doing and a Kate and Anna McGarrigal song that, you know, Linda Ronstadt's doing? Well, no, it's an interesting thing of like wishing for the more technically pleasing or mainstreamed or whatever version of something. I do yeah. think there is, and I, I guess I'm always resistant to that idea on some philosophical level. I like to give credence to the original thing as much as possible. Yeah. But every now and then you'll discover a song you love is not an original song or it's, you know, it's a cover and you didn't know it was one and you realize, oh, I guess it really kind of depends on what got you in the door. But I, I, I understand the idea of a, a great interpreter singing a great song and taking it to some next level. And I think that's where Linda Ronstadt yeah. is. Um, she's in that Sinatra department or something where it's like, you just say, here's a person who, what people love about it is hearing the way they coax a song, you know, into existence. And it doesn't have to, you, you don't have to imagine they wrote it. That's not even part of what you're thinking about when you see those performers do it. Whereas other people, a lot of the charm, and I would put They Might Be Giants in that bucket of like, it's knowing that they are the guys who write and do all this stuff and it's like the that part of it is a huge part of the creative decisions that are made because you aren't going well why don't they get somebody who can sing better obviously there's different ways into the hearts and minds of music fans it doesn't have to always do with like this person was gifted with a certain type of uh you know nasal cavity and <laughs> throat yeah i had no choice born with the gift of a golden voice Similarly, Leonard Cohen. Every Leonard Cohen song sounds the same unless somebody else is singing it. But they're all beautiful songs. They're all amazing songs. And people that love it love that. Like if you didn't know him and you just heard one of his mid-period stuff, you might go like, 
what's, who's this guy? <laughs> just kind of rumbling his way through. But if you love it, you sort of have to have decided I'm bought into whatever this person is trying to share. Even if I, you know, I can come away yeah. being critical of the thing, but I'm here for their, their art. So you mentioned how quickly Cal uh, like processes and decodes the music that he's listening to. Is he just constantly churning through new songs or does he do what most kids do and, and, and listen to the same thing over and over again anyway? He's imprinted on many, many songs over the years. And, you know, what he does these days is uh, he spends a, a fair amount of his day looking stuff up on YouTube. And the algorithm moves him from one thing to another, but he himself has a, an amazing ability to um, follow chord progression from one thing to another and to recognize the chord progression uh, uh, that resonates from one thing to another. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that he used to do fairly early on that really mystified people, um, except for professional musicians, was that he would take the lyrics of one song and sing it to the, to the tune of another song, and it would totally work. Um, so you're saying he's like the mashup king. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of an ear can really go a long way in music. It's a little bit like having an innate sense of composition uh, as a as a photographer or of being a writer and having a really good vocabulary. You know, not just knowing there's a word for it, but knowing what the word is. I really compare it to this thing that I've had my whole life, which is being able to see how a sentence fits together and why it works or why it doesn't work. I think I know what you mean. And I kind of do that even when I'm reading. I can't get it out of my head sometimes. Like if I really like a sentence, I'll, I'll spend way too much time kind of parsing it. Um, almost like I'm trying to break down the person's stylistic tics. One of the, one of the most fun things that I've been asked to do over like the last 10 years, you know, I mean, I work on things uh, on my own time. But I tend to wait until somebody asks me for something to finish uh, a short story. In a lot of ways, one of the most interesting things that I've been asked to do over the last 10 years is to contribute to themed anthologies where the theme is the writing of a particular person, like Shirley Jackson or um, Matthew Bartlett. I was in a, an anthology uh, which was a tribute to Thomas Ligotti and... You know, I can't write like Thomas Ligotti, but what I did with that was I looked at the themes of Thomas Ligotti and I tried to find something that I was already working on, which kind of resonated with those themes. What I was writing, what I was writing about would not almost matter so much as the way that I was writing about it and the way that I was telling a story. And, you know, those are really interesting challenges because you spend so much time trying to find the right pocket for your voice, trying to, you know, trying to find your voice. You know, it's like we all begin in pastiche. But like Thomas Ligotti is such an alienating philosophical writer that it seems like you would have to start from that idea. That position of just, he writes in this very dispassionate way that is, is unnerving <laughs> to, to a reader, I think. So, you know, can I create a story that hopefully makes you feel the same way that or similarly to the way that you feel when you write it, when you when you hear a Thomas Ligotti story in your head, you know, you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, man, <laughs> it's like, why did yeah. you get to me? Why did you... Yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> why, did you leave me? why did you leave me there in the dark? What was that about? Yeah. <laughs> 
What did I do to you? <laughs> what is this angry world coming to? What did I do to you? I want to go back to something you said earlier about how this story sort of required you basing the story on yourself and starting Lois's arc at, at what you would call your lowest point. Yeah. At the beginning of this story, Lois is not just unsure that her son loves her. She's she's um, you know, she's not sure that she deserves love at all. And that's kind of an upsetting place to be. What was it about that that was so intrinsic to this story? Like why did the protagonist have to be in that emotional vulnerable place? Um, I think in a lot of ways it it, go, it comes down to the question of why would you become obsessed with this particular thing and why would you pursue it? to uh, such a degree that it really begins to damage you um, and potentially damage the people around you. And, you know, this is, uh, this is what I call the, uh, uh, the Candyman dilemma, you know, because um, Candyman is one of my favorite films. And um, I have heard so many people go, you know, it's like, oh, that's, that's some white woman shit right there, you know, <laughs> which, is, which is true. You know, Virginia Madsen um, has an amazing amount of privilege coming with her throughout that film. You know, at no point does it ever occur to her that, you know, it's like, maybe don't go to Cabrini Green. Maybe don't, you know, maybe don't climb through that the back of that mirror. Maybe don't, you know, maybe don't do this. Maybe don't do that until she is completely enmeshed in it. Until it's literally like, oh, who is that? You know, turn around. It's Tony Todd. Be my victim. I love that movie too, but I, I've always thought that was a terrible sales pitch. Be my victim. Surely you can come up with a better way of... <laughs> like, it, it, it only works if you're Tony Todd. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> so people would say these things to me and I, I'd be like, no, no, but she wants to know. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's curiosity. She doesn't know she's in a horror movie. She doesn't, you know, at no point is, is she like, you know, if I, if I keep pursuing this, Eventually, actual factual Candyman may come to my house and kill people I love. You know, it's like, who thinks that? Nobody thinks that, but people think a lot of other things. And I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to make it very, very clear that this is a big thing to her. It is more to her than almost anything else in her life right now, even though she has a child, even though with special needs, even though she has, you know, and I, and I, and I very calculatedly was like, you know, and I'm going to make her husband a really nice guy who is not the kind of dude who's like, oh, my son just got diagnosed. Gotta go. You know, <laughs> nor is he the sort of um, limp noodle, uh, you know, like strapping boyfriend character that so many people put in a story where it's like he shows up yeah. to either get killed or 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 just save the day. Like there's he's a sort of realistic spouse, and it's like he Thank you. he foreground. Well, I found that part to be very nice, and I've always thought have someone in a story who starts off in a relationship and they end in the same relationship um, yes. doesn't mean nothing happens to it to everybody. But like, no. and also killing people is another thing where you go cannon fodder characters are fun in horror movies um, mm -hmm. and for something like Candyman to work you need some cannon fodder characters but you also I think a friend of mine once said about a script that I had co-written you know there's more interesting things to do to a character than kill them 
And yes, exactly. I, I was like, you know, I knew that, but it's true that thinking that's the ultimate statement of about what happens to someone. And that's why I think sometimes people approach stories in that bloodthirsty way of saying nothing happened if nobody died. I have seen a story like a zombie movie where there's 11 people around at the end. And I'm like, well, what the hell were you doing? You have 11 people in a zombie movie. You should start biting them up and stuff. But in general, I think that it's always more interesting when you can somehow end a story with everybody alive or intact in some yeah, way, exactly. or almost everybody, yeah. and yet not. Um, you know, whenever people say, uh, well, you know, how are so many people on The Walking Dead alive? I'm like, A, not so many, and B, what about the rest of the world? <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that all the people within a certain state would want to get together, <laughs> if nothing else, to, to be in the middle of a crowd so that when the dead come. Right. You know? well, or, or that just we're watching the story about the people that lived. You know, we're watching yeah. like it is sometimes like convenient. And I think, yeah. again, that's where you have to give your writing the 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 smack of life and have yeah. things happen. I do think in experimental film, and this is at the risk of being spoilery, but there is a sort of villainous character that I had to wonder um, if the if the sympathetic spouse is sort of drawn from real life, uh, so seems the character of Rob Barney. I have to know, was this a particular, was was this you really sticking it to somebody specific or is this just a type? But I feel like this, this guy is the hapless fool version of the seeker that we've been talking about. I think in a story like this, where you have this ineffable uh, thing that's about to happen, and we'll talk about what is at the center of experimental film in just a minute, but I like that you give Lois a human nemesis, kind of a Newman to her, her Jerry, that is very much like, um, you know, that's threaded through the story. And I guess the spoilery thing would be to address his his comeuppance or not. I guess I can leave that mm -hmm. hanging. But I think you can you can stink you can smell the stink on him the whole time of like this guy's unsympathetic in a, in a world where unsympathetic characters are allowed to be sympathetic. This guy is particularly unsympathetic. So maybe tell me a little bit as much as you feel well, comfortable saying about <laughs> the inspiration yeah, no, for Rob Barney. I will, I will say that uh, although I patterned um, Rob's work after the work of a couple of experimental filmmakers that I, uh, that I covered during my tenure as, as a film critic, um, Rob himself was not really based on any one person. Um, what I do feel in hindsight is that Rob is like an inverse version of uh, of Lois, um, you know, uh, he's everything that she fears that she is, you know, he's exploitative. Um, he's kind of lazy in some ways, creatively lazy, or he can look like he's creatively lazy. I think he'd probably argue on his own behalf, but, you know, um, all the things that she doesn't like about herself, she kind of resizes to fit Rob. And, you know, um, and, you know, Rob is is genuinely a not particularly likable and, you know, Machiavellian in a very dumbass way. Right. He's like a charlatan who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, but he's one of those people who just doesn't know he's never been punched just because no one's punched him yet. You know, it's like. Exactly. <laughs> you know? He thinks he's outsmarted everybody. He thinks he's Bugs yeah. Bunny, but it's like, no, everybody has decided you're not worth the trouble. And that's why you're standing here today. <laughs> that's exactly it. And, you know, possibly because he comes from a rich family and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, um, I and, and it's like and he'd sue you. <laughs> he'd definitely sue you if you punched him. He'd, he'd, yeah. he'd, he'd 
try to get you char charged with a hate crime, actually. Those characters always make me nervous because it's exactly what we just said. He's not going to step back from the brink the way that Lois would. No, not at all. And, and you know, and the thing is that he comes from the Lake of the North County. And um, I think he has been... Uh, attracted by the same threads of mystery that Lois has. And, you know, if you if you spoke to him about it and he wanted to be even vaguely honest with you, he'd be like, you know, I have been circling this since I was a kid. You know, it's like you found out, out about this like three months ago. You You don't really, you don't own this. You know, it's like both of them are going like, you don't own this, <laughs> which is hilarious to me because yeah. neither of them own it. <laughs> neither of them have any, you know, ownership over what's going on. This, you know, what's going on is a considerably longer, deeper, different thing. And it all goes back to a person who is not either of them. There was one time, this was probably maybe 10 years ago. I remember sitting in my basement. I was on the phone with tech support. Or not tech support, like uh, customer service. There were some cell charges or some kind of credit card yeah. thing I was trying to finagle and get, get my way out of it. And so I was stressed and it was like in the middle of the night and I was on some 1-800 number and the person said, um, uh, uh, you know, hold on or whatever. And there's this weird little quiet on the line. You know how with a digital line, it's like, it's not right. like it used to be where you had a little feedback of your own voice and it sounded like a continuous connection. It's now there's like utter silence. And I remembered hearing in my, in my holding up my cell phone, hearing the utter, like the silence of them not talking, going to the digital silence of nothing, you know? And it was this weird feeling of nothing. Like I, I was hearing nothing. Like, yeah. I know that sounds weird. And for a split second, I was like, did everything, pa did the universe pause? Like if, if someone was like observing the stars, would they have said there was a weird moment? Yeah. Cause it really felt like I was alone with nothingness. I don't know. It's that weird fiction thing of just perceiving something different. Or in that case, I felt like I was seeing through it for a second. And it's like when her, vo when her voice came back through the void, she was like, all right, Mr. Walker, I think I can help you out. There was this thing where I was like, oh, I kind of snapped back into reality. Yeah. It's almost like that's the moment where, and I don't, I think the simulation gets over gets overhyped. But I do have moments where I'm like, yeah, if there were a simulation, that was a moment where you were seeing through it for a second or there was a tiny yeah. glitch or something. I, I, I was about to say that because uh, I just watched a glitch in the Matrix, which, by the way, is amazing. Uh, and I had it for a couple of days and I actually rewatched it, which I don't do that often. Um, it's a documentary about simulation theory. Um, and uh, everyone who's... Uh, Everyone who's interviewed in it is uh, interviewed over the internet wearing an avatar. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, that's that's the guy who looks like Anubis in a tuxedo. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the dude who's for some insane reason made himself look like a very fat alien in a spacesuit. <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, you know, I mean. <sighs> I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about things like that, whether it's a tribute to the growing alienation of um, 
21st century life. To me, the simulation, I don't know what value I find in it yeah. uh, in terms of getting through my day. <laughs> like it kind of hurts my head to to give too much thought to it. But, but I do think that idea that you can't prove your own reality to yourself by thinking about it, it is kind of a, again, it is a, you can't get out of the vortex of it. That whole Descartesian thing, right? The idea that yes, if I want to prove myself to myself it is pretty much impossible at the most i could say i exist because i know that i exist and but how does that prove that everything else around me exists again i i i think there's this kind of intense uh, c.s lewis kind of devilish practicality about my stripe of Aspergian thinking of Aspergers, because at a certain point I'm able to go, yeah, you know, solipsism is not useful. It's not useful for me. You know, it's like, I, I can't do that. I'm not interested in, in debating my own reality or the reality of people around me, particularly because if you convince yourself that everyone around you is an NPC with uh, a limited bunch of emotional scripts, then it's very easy to convince yourself that other people don't exist and therefore it doesn't matter what you do to them. And I think that that's bullshit. I love that you use the word solipsism because this is why solipsism isn't a good thing. You know, like this is why that word denotes something negative <laughs> and isn't like a, a word people use when they're referring to like logical self-consideration. They're talking about something like, a, a, you know, folding in on yourself in that way. And I do think I agree 100% what you just said about like reducing it all to this, to this thought experiment. It does feel like, okay, that's, that is a great way to distance yourself from, for the reality of other people. And I, no one is annoyed by other people like I am. If I could, <laughs> if, if I could simulate them <laughs> out of my way, I would do it. Um, yeah. And I, but I'm stuck with them, you know, 47 years in, I haven't found a way to avoid them. No, this is, this is the thing, you know, it's like, if I was actually, if nothing in the world existed, but me, then I would control the world. And why would I have made the world work the way it did for me? for like the first 25 years of my life. I don't, you know, it's like, why would I do that to myself? There's, so in other words, you know, from my point of view, the world must exist and something else must be controlling things, even if it's just a bunch of impulses, you know, that are not mine working themselves out around me, um, you know. And now that I'm on medication, I'm able to see that I spent, you know, a lot of my early life, very angry. Uh, and I'm now able to see that what I was actually was not so much angry and hateful, but I was afraid. Uh, and I was afraid of other people. I was afraid of the world. I was afraid of um, not being able to negotiate my way through things. Um, and I was afraid of being unloved and never being able to love anybody. And now that I don't have to worry about constantly being trapped in that loop, um, I'm able to be kind both to myself and to other people and to get a certain satisfaction out of being kind to other people. Um, and that's really pleasant. I like it. I like it a lot better than I, than, you know, I remember what it was like to be 
the way that I was before. You know, that feeling of walking to your car and you're in a hurry and someone's like, hey, and you just hear the tone that they're not in a hurry and you are. And it feels like, oh my God, how dare you? But if you ever just stop and like let that feeling of irritation melt away, you'll instantly become engaged with the other person. I mean, unless you're totally unlucky to have utter dullards around you, which most of us might have a couple, but <laughs> that, that's not the, it's not everybody. People are interesting and they're, they're usually okay. I mean, in general, I'm not saying there's not a lot of exceptions to the rule, but what you're talking what you're talking about of just like interacting with people is good for you having a little exchange you know and i think that is something that i as a weirdo have come to embrace is almost like a value is saying like oh let people be them let people be the unless you know we're not talking about offensive views or hateful views or anything but just let people be their own weird version of themselves yeah we're, we're, we're not talking about you know let, let, let people be themselves and believe in QAnon. <laughs> I like the way you blend fact and fiction in experimental film um, because Lois is working in the sort of academic slash critical side of the Canadian film industry, which is obviously a world you know, having worked in it yourself. And so it does feel very lived in and honest. And that way, when we do find out about this film that has this supernatural power and this figure at the center of it, uh, Lady Midday, which is a, a character you've pulled from uh, Slavic folklore and you've kind of put your spin on it but this idea of you know what this film could contain and what this film could do to someone who watches it or even knows about it all of that stuff is something we're much more likely to go along with because you have provided uh, a very recognizable milieu that is the way that you convince people of things that are not real you know, it's like, yeah, I hate to say it, haunted films, probably not real, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> probably. Yeah, and the, and the weird part is that, you know, it's like there's been um, some movies since I, since I wrote experimental film that I've tripped across, which, I, you know, at the time I hadn't read a lot of stuff about haunted films or the idea of film as a supernatural medium. People would often say, oh, just like blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, yeah, I haven't actually read that. And even back then, the the thing that I had seen that was closest to what I was thinking of was probably Cigarette Burns from Masters of Horror by John Carpenter. But, you know, since then, there have been films like Antrim, the deadliest film ever made, and Fury of the Demon, you know, stuff where people take a mockumentary kind of, or even something like Butterfly Kisses, you know, people people take a mockumentary kind of approach to presenting the idea of a film that, ex that exists or existed and was made to have an effect on people or to bring something into the world. And whenever I look at films like that as a former film critic and to some degree a former film historian, the thing that disabuses me of the reality of the thing that they're talking about the, the fake thing that they're talking about is that I don't think I don't think most of them really understand what a film like that would be like you know what would be what would be something that would absolutely freak out an audience in the 1940s or absolutely freak out an, an audience at the beginning of of the century people lean on the unknowable a lot people yeah. lean on that uh, Lovecraftian idea. I mean, I, I, I do think a lot of my favorite horror and a lot of my ideas about stories in that realm 
are in that cosmic horror mold just because of the philosophical thing we talked about earlier with regards to like the meaninglessness of it and how that could manifest. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, sometimes, sometimes that glimpse or the lack of description helps. But I think that one of the things you do with uh, Lady Midday, the sort of uh, subject of the, the horror in experimental film, is um, you do tell us about what it looks like. And it's a little bit like, I don't know, I, I just remember reading about angels when I was a kid and how yeah. people would like go blind and grow horns and go crazy <laughs> because they looked at one, you know? And yes, and yes. I love that idea of sort of describing what, what the experience would be like. And you're sort of trusting what the mental effects are because we're seeing Lois go through it firsthand. But also just, I do, I do like that you go ahead and describe what's, what, what people are actually seeing. It's the effects of it that you kind of have to imagine. But people frequently do like to say, oh, it's unthinkable. You can't, you know, it's the book. If you read it, you'll yeah. go crazy. Uh, I just watched In the Mouth of Madness uh, again yeah. recently with my 13-year-old son. He's, he's uh, you know, a horror fan, and I'm, I'm giving him the good to great ones, you know. So at this point, right. he thinks it's a pretty rocking genre. <laughs> he has not watched all the Drek yet, but even the Drek is fun. Uh, but I was like, oh, yes, this idea of the infernal art object. I think it's really useful as a storytelling device. The idea that, A, that it's a specific object is something that, especially in experimental film, comes into it because it's it's a specific film, you know, not just it's not just a copy of a film, though the copy has its own potency. There's something about the source of this. This object itself is infernal. But I also think that um, it's a great way to convey this idea of there was some attempt made to like proselytize on behalf of some entity, you know? And so they made a thing that was intended to reach more people. Yeah. And I love the sort of homegrown, I love that you have, oh, this is an unknowable ancient being and it's got a grassroots campaign together to try to get its name out, you know? Um, or someone is trying to capture it, you know, or whatever. But like the idea that the art is... It makes you think about the object you're reading. Like I'm reading a book that's about this film. Wait, am I being infected by the idea? Yeah, exactly. We create art so that we can explore something without having to touch it directly in a lot of ways. It's like, um, uh, the same way that in film we say what's important is the frame, um, you know, what's outside the frame and what's inside the frame, you know, what we exclude, what we, um, what we decide to exclude from the frame is almost as important as what we de decide to include in the frame. And the movement of the frame becomes uh, part of the storytelling mechanism. And what's outside the frame is chaos, you know? That's right. If you've ever been on a film set or looked at a writer's notes. Yeah, you know, it's like you, 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 inside, the, inside the frame, you're alone. Inside the frame, there are two people having sex in a room and they're completely alone. And outside the frame, there's like a guy who's spraying water on them to simulate uh, sweat. There's, you know, uh, a dude with lights there's you know there's a, there's several cameras there's you know puppeteers maybe depending on the sex scene i guess yes that's that's true i guess yeah if if uh, <laughs> if, if you're talking about uh, possession right. in 1981. <laughs> but um yeah you know and so so we we make a frame so that we can look at something 
which is difficult to look at. And we make a frame so that we can capture it, even if we're only capturing it in a, you know, this is the tail of the elephant. This is the, you know, this is the, the nose of the elephant. This is, um, you know, this is the side of the elephant. Put them all together, they make an elephant kind of way. You know, we're, we're capturing like details of something which is so huge that it cannot possibly be captured. Um, and yet, um, I think on some level, we all understand that even to approach some things is dangerous. Even to approach the idea, for example, of death is dangerous. Um, you know, even to approach the idea of I could do X is sometimes dangerous depending on what X is. It could be, you know, I could sleep with my best friend's wife, or it could be I could, you know, stick this pencil in somebody's jugular, you know, just because. I just could smash my face down on this eye of the stove that's like red hot right now, or I could steer I could steer into oncoming traffic. Yeah, yeah whatever that's exactly it. little thing you could do in half a second that would like fuck it all up, you know? Yeah, and, you know, and in the mythology of... In the mythology of um, the Polidnice, uh, the noonday witch, the you know lady midday, um, she reminded me a lot of the idea of a muse. Um, I you know I came across it on the internet, the way that one does, um, and you know the idea of that you know people often I'm I'm a big um, I'm a big outliner. Uh, but I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm at the mercy of my muse. You know, it's like suddenly something came into my mind and I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you do that to yourself? You know, because there's like some part of me that, that I guess to some degree believes that if something appears in your mind, that someone, something might've put it there. Hearing the still small voice of God you know, it's like, why is that a good thing? Right. <laughs> it's like um, Larry Cohen said, I, I pray that God leaves me alone. <laughs> I pray that God doesn't look at me. Yeah. Yeah. Just passing through here, please. You know, <laughs> nothing to see. Like, yeah, exactly. And so the idea of her appearing at this, you know, incredibly compact moment and, you know, but if you give her any kind of attention, you know, you could end up with your head buried in a field. You could end up, you know, you could, or you could end up being sun, sunstruck. You could end up being scarred. You could end up thinking about her for the rest of your life. Totally. When people are at the mercy of their muse, often they copy the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I'm, you know, I, I'm no different, right? If you look at what I write about, I'm sure you can find. Oh God, I found an essay on the on the net the other day where somebody had actually written about um, the patterns in a bunch of things that I've written, and it's true. There are characters that work their way through a lot of my short stories, um, who all literally know each other uh, or are literally related to each other, and seeing it all on the page, it was just like oh my god you know um and it's and it's very easy to ask myself you know where do these things come from and they come from a whole bunch of different places but they're all they're all streamed through me they're all streamed through my frame you know mm -hmm. and my frame is different from everybody else's frame because of what's what it's trained on the creative impulse is so 
caught up with obsession, you know? Um, and uh, I've spent a lot of my life um, feeling like, oh, I should be writing, I'm not writing well enough. Why is everything so hard? You know, um, I, I say to my students, uh, don't stop, just make yourself grind on, go all the way to the end. You know, it's very Chrome and Bergian phrase, but um, because you can fix bad writing, but you can't fix no writing. And we can very easily get caught up in the idea, um, like you said, that, um, well, this has been done before, this was done better, this was done in a different way. And, you know, to which I would say, well, yeah. And if you do it, it will, again, be done in a different way. It will be done your way. You know, when we say, when we talk about a person having a vocation, um, most of the time, that's a person who's a priest, a, a person who's a religious of some type. You know, uh, that by doing the thing that defines you as a person, you are praying to some degree. You are, you are, you know, praying. You are, you are uh, doing an offering. You are making a devotion to the god of writing or the, you know, the, the goddess of, uh, the goddess of writing or, you know, the, the, the numinous being of writing the thing from whom all stories flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a friend of mine recently said, said about a musical decision that was based totally on chance of something that happened while he was recording that ended up on a, on a recording. And yeah. he said he thought about redoing it, but also thought, wait, listen to what the art gods are trying to tell you, you know? Yeah. And I mean, again, I tried to get, I tried to get too like up in my head and hokey about stuff like that. But I do, th I've, especially with songs, I've thought of it as like plucking something from the air sometimes where it's like, if yeah. you don't do it, someone else will, you know? And, well, I, that, yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's about as superstitious as I get with it is like, if you don't pursue that idea, and, uh, you know, you will hear someone else do it. Yeah, absolutely. Or or read so read someone else do it, or see someone else do it. And you seem like a person with a voracious pop cultural appetite. So I'm sure you have. I'm sure it kind of works out that you know at least what's going on with the things that you're interested in. Oh, but wait. I also think you must at some point say, no, I'm going to bring my perspective. Like you said, your frame is what you bring, and you could tell that yeah. we could sit down and someone could say take this news story and make it into a short story and you give it to two different writers yeah. and, and they would tell, they would write totally different stories. Absolutely. And they, and the, the different, the different stories would come out of who they were as people, not just who they were as writers, but who they were as people as well. You know, it's like everything that I turn my attention upon, everything that I turn my eyes upon, it comes through my brain and my brain is a huge, it's a strange loop of influences. It's a huge collage of everything that I've ever consumed. Uh, it's a mulch heap and everything is, <laughs> you know, just sort of like blending together. But as Sherlock Holmes would say, you, you know, your, your mind is inhabited by the things that, you know, you let inside of it. Okay, so these were all things that I was thinking about in the back of my brain when I was thinking about Lady Midday and the effect of Lady Midday and, you know, what would be what would be the kind of devotion that Lady Midday would evoke in a person and uh, expect from a person, that they would do their work, that they would do the thing that they were made for. And, you know, I think that this is a very irreligious or a religious age, right? 
where everything is, you know, all the patterns of authority are kind of breaking down. And, you know, and I think a lot of what's going on right now can be attributed to, to that, you know, the idea that, <laughs> the idea that individualism in, for a lot of people has um, just kind of degenerated into, you're not the fucking boss of me. You can't tell me what to do, yeah. you know, and yet all of us want on some level to be told what to do. All of us want on some level to believe that there is a, that there are invisible hands guiding us and that there is some kind of intelligence behind everything. Not just, not just us doing things because we want to, you know, it's like both of those things are equally frightening as an idea. Mm -hmm. you know? Cause you know, your own judgment, you know, it's like when you realize like, okay, it's kind of like that thing of being a grown up and realizing when you were a kid, you thought grown ups had it together or had all been to some meeting or had some certification exactly. or something. And yeah, now you realize, yeah. no, they're just as confused. And furthermore, most generational stuff is rooted in, in, you know, like uh, categorical statements that you can't always back up. But I do think particularly the the old blaming the young mm -hmm. uh, is one of the most offensive things that I encounter these days. Yeah. Well, it's considerably more offensive than the young blaming the old which makes a lot more um, sense because that's a young person is walking into a a rental yeah. house for instance that hasn't been properly cleaned and has complaints uh and the old person is like uh saying fuck the next person i don't know there, there's there's a difference there's a difference there i'm, I'm gonna die soon fuck you yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and um you know I, and then i'll i'll be dead and gone and i won't have to worry about you in fact i'm not worrying about you now well it's that thing that everybody else is an npc like why would i care you know yeah, exactly exactly it seems like there are certain folks that think that everybody's faking it when they show compassion or faking it when they actually are not treating people like yeah. NPCs. And it's like the assumption is everybody's faking it. So I got to get mine. Um, yeah. It nauseates me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's super gross. And that's, that's just the fact, Jack, but <laughs> um, there's not much I can do about it except on a, on a personal level, um, you know, because the only person's behavior that I can particularly affect is my own. And this too works into the way that I constructed experimental film you know it's like i am who i am and therefore i have to approach things the way that i approach them and you know and this is eventually what what lois does you know and and uh what i find amusing in hindsight is how um <laughs> there's there's a big streak of perversity in her which which more than anything else causes her to go yeah no that just sounds like um yeah i'm not gonna do that <laughs> she has a little nasty streak or a dismissive streak that, again, I relate to. Ooh. I'm the one you want to sit in the back with at some function and have and mutter things back and forth, you know, or at least that's where I want to be. That's the role yeah. I want to play for my friends. Yeah. So I like when a narrator assumes that role of like, well, I'm going to tell you what's really happening, but I'm also going to let you know that I'm like, yeah, this is some bullshit, you know. And I think it helps in this type of story to have that because it helps it by it helps me buy in when the when the narrator's a little bit cynical and a little bit self excoriating that's very welcoming to me and that goes back to that thought about characters being likable um Good. you know that like if people can people can get past that i think on at, you know people there are a lot of you know bordering on villainous or anti-heroic characters nowadays that are you're expected to sympathize with but mm -hmm. i think having like a true protagonist who is just like a little darker, a little more cynical. Uh, yeah, it warms me up <laughs> when I'm reading a story. Yeah, every every time people are like, oh, Lois is awful. You know, I'm like, well, on the one hand, 
I don't exactly love myself, but she is me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, okay. You know? Like, what are you like, saying, friend? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And that was part one. Uh, you can follow Gemma on Twitter at Gemma Files. That's G-E-M-M-A-F-I-L-E-S. She's pretty active on there, but the really cool thing is you'll see some sketches she's been doing. I guess these are just kind of like doodles she does to keep busy when she's in meetings and on calls and stuff. But these are actually pretty amazing, and they go very nicely with her short stories. So yes, follow her on Twitter and look for her books wherever you buy books. As for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Johnny W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. It's a good time to follow me because I'm about to announce something kind of cool that I'm very excited about. So follow me there and you'll be in the know. And lastly, I guess I just want to say thank you to Daniel Ferris, who provided the ambient music that you can hear in certain parts of this podcast. You should follow his work wherever you can find it as a producer and as a musician because he is good. Uh, But that's it for now. Until next time, we should probably get out of here. For more episodes of Skirt and other podcasts kind of like it, look for FYIZ on your favorite podcatcher app.